Today's read, Midnight, A Gangster Love Story by Sister Soldier. Chapter 16, Sudana. The smell of chopped peppers, garlic, onions, and tomatoes, plus several secret ingredients of Uma's, filled our apartment on early Sunday afternoon. After a great meal, Naja and I walked to the store to pick up various Sunday newspapers. When we returned, Uma excitedly announced, Leave your shoes on. I have a chance to take some measurements from the family members of the wedding party. On a Sunday, Naja asked Uma, I know it's a rush job because of everyone's schedule, so many of us working two jobs. It turns out that Sunday is our best option. I just got the call from Yaela. The earlier I get these measurements done, the more comfortable they will feel. One of the women even works on Sundays. Now her sister says I have less than two hours to get over to the Bronx to take her measurements before the woman is off to work again. Naja and I listened and waited. Uma spoke as she rushed around. Ever since Naja was born, Sunday in our apartment was reserved as family day. The rule is, no matter what we do, we do it together on Sundays. Usually we relax at home reading, listening to music, or conversing with one another. In the spring and summers, we go to the park or to a special event that's of interest to us. On crunch time, Uma sews and Naja and I remain in the apartment along with her, doing one of our own hobbies. I never minded family day. Sometimes it was the only day where we could catch some real rest. Sundays slowed me down. Once we arrived on our new Sudanese customer's Bronx block, Without even looking at the numbers on the small houses, I assumed their house was the white one with the aluminum siding and green trimming. It was the only house on the block with a gate around it. I knew if a Sudanese-born man came to this country along with his family, once he got a good look at the crazy Americans and the way that they live, his first priority would be to protect his family. Placing a gate around his property was a small way to separate or distinguish his loved ones from the influence and lifestyles of their American neighbors. As we walked down the length of their block, my prediction turned out to be true. Assalamu alaikum the voice from the other side of the fence before we even reached to push the gate open. A Sudanese youth, around 17 years young, with a soccer ball in his hand, greeted all of us as he opened the gate and welcomed us in. A second, older son also ran up. They were all smiles, the sincere way people back home greeted one another. I had lost that all-day automatic natural smile years ago and now greeted most males with suspicion instead. Their father welcomed us through their front door. Like many Sudanese men, he was tall, 
brown-skinned. He had the nappy curls of a North African male. He embraced me, which was customary. At first, I felt uncomfortable. When I'm holding, I don't fuck around with no hugging. Then I felt a warmth from my past, where men in a family and even in a neighborhood were all each other's security and not opponents. Where a man greeted a next man warmly and genuinely without even an ounce of perversion. Most important, their father was respectful to Uma and praised her reputation and good works. He kept a respectful distance and a proper gaze and immediately brought forth his wife who whisked Uma away to some rooms in the back of their home. In an open area up front, he invited me to sit with him and his sons. Almost immediately, a young daughter arrived to collect my jacket. She was covered from head to toe. I didn't even look directly at her. I did watch the direction in which she carried my jacket. I watched her hang it up in a closet then close the door. Now that I knew where she was headed with it, I felt relieved. I wouldn't want her to find anything in my pockets that she could hurt herself or anybody else with by accident. While Mr. Salim Ahmed Amin Ghazali was there, we spoke only in Arabic, really a familiar Sudanese Arabic Creole. Business has been good for you and your family, he asked. It's building slowly, I responded truthfully. No, son, it was not a question. I know your business is good because I have heard and seen so many good things about Uma Designs. Thank you, I replied. Allah has blessed me to own two taxis. So I meet a lot of people in this city. One day, I collected a very smartly dressed woman from Kenya. I recognized through my rearview mirror right away that she was wearing cloths with a Sudanese design and influence. I wanted to know, but did not want to ask her. Then I thought about the fact that my wife would surely want to know where she bought such nice materials. The Kenyan woman spoke so highly of Uma Designs, yet she did not have your business card available and could not remember the telephone number by heart. I thought to myself, hey, that's how it goes. You pick up a passenger once and never see them again. If you don't get whatever information you might need from them right then and there, you lose out. Believe it or not, this happened to me a few times with your company. After the third time, I looked up Uma Designs in the telephone directory, planning to order a gift for my wife. Eventually, I dialed up 411, but nothing, he smiled, holding his hands up. He was one of those men who spoke with his hands. It's a small family business with excellent products and services. We haven't expanded as of yet. We have more than enough customers so far. Your account is very important to us. We are certain that you will be more than pleased with everything that Uma Designs has to offer, I said slowly and thoughtfully. Iwala, he said, gesturing with his hands at his sons. Well said. Are you boys listening? 
if I could only get the two of you to represent me like this young man represents his family business, he said, impressed. In the taxi business, father, his oldest son asked, but you have sent us off to school, the oldest son respectfully defended. Yes, but there is after school, the father replied sternly. We must study, father. Even you have said this, the older son reminded him. We do work for you on Sundays, father, the young son added. No matter. Your father will work four jobs. Drive two cabs all at once as long as all six of my children become doctors, lawyers, and engineers. Where do you go to school, son? He turned his conversation toward me. It was his first in a series of questions he hurled my way. I remained respectful and elusive. Each time, I guided the conversation back to the business at hand, collecting the necessary information for his nephew's wedding and, of course, working my way toward the required $5,000 deposit. While their father spoke, his sons were almost completely quiet and obedient in his presence. In our tradition, a son cherishes his father. The most important thing a son can do after submitting to Allah is to listen to and obey his father and work very hard to become worthy of the father's love and acknowledgement. I understood these two sons. One of them had on red pants. The other was wearing orange pants. They better hurry up and figure out how to get with New York styles, I thought to myself. They could not play behind the gate of their house forever, and they would never be able to mix or survive in these hoods wearing bright colored pants, tight t-shirts, and bootleg sneakers. If the wrong niggas caught them in the wrong neighborhood, the first beatdown would be based on style alone separate from whatever else the attackers wanted to steal or do them. They were easy targets. Less than half an hour in, another sister appeared, fully wrapped in a mustard-colored thobe. She was a pretty teenage girl named Sudana who had beautifully shaped eyes, colored like an African wildcat's, hazel with a deep, dark brown perimeter. All I could see were her eyes and her smooth and flawless skin, the type that our women had from eating olives and dates and other natural foods. Her hair was completely covered. The whites of her eyes were brilliant white, just like her perfect teeth. Her slim fingers were wrapped around a wooden serving tray, which she placed in front of me offering in English. Would you like coffee, tea, or a cold drink, all of which she carried in on the tray along with Sudanese sweets. I wasn't hungry, but I could not refuse her. She reminded me of the incomparable beauty of Uma's female friends back home. They used to visit her on our estate, and because I was just a child, they would unwrap themselves, some removing their veils and relaxing in my presence. 
they underestimated me because of my youth. Yet, I studied them and noticed every single detail and difference in each one of them. Their eyes and even the length of their eyelashes, the curve of their cheeks and lips, the length of their necks and the shape of their shoulders. I could even push it further and reveal to you that sometimes I closed my eyes and challenged myself to identify each one of them by their scent alone. I developed a careful eye for feminine elegance, the way a jeweler could pluck just one clear diamond out of a fistful of flaws. I could look at tens and hundreds of women, I thought, and choose one whose cut, shape, and quality were superb on the outside and clean and clear on the inside. For me, with observing and being attracted to females, everything mattered and measured. The look, the voice and sound, the rhythm of the walk, the manners of expression, the balance between modesty and beauty, the depth of the conversation, the words she spoke and the way she spoke them, the feeling of her presence, the depth of her concern and admiration for me, the way she interacted with my friends and family, and simple things like what she actually did with her life from day to day. From being born Muslim, African, and Sudanese, I learned to enjoy seeing less of a woman and imagining more, so that in America, when a woman shows me too much or is too fast and too obvious or too empty, it kills the power of her mystery, freezes my imagination and poises my natural attraction. Some of the American girls seemed to think I was cold, but like a jeweler, I was 100% certain when I was seeing something fake, flawed, or cheap and I was not attracted to it, even though it might have one or two good parts. I liked seeing Sudana. She made me feel at home. She was subtle, sweet, and careful, not a high-powered vacuum cleaner like the American girls who came at me all day long. Titties first and ass out. Nice looking, but way too much, way too quick, only to find out she's really nothing at all. I figured Sudana was about 15. Back home, she and I could get married any day now, unless we chose to delay our family life and work by attending college. The thought made me smile. Seconds later, Reality dropped on my head. We were all here in the U.S. and every single familiar thing we did and believed would be considered wrong and outrageous. After serving me the guest and her brothers and father, she left the room. We enjoyed our cold drinks. Mr. Ghazali enjoyed his tea and we all ate the small homemade pastries. Conversations ranged from the high price of American living to first encounters with Americans. 
the horror stories all taking place in Mr. Ghazali's taxi cab. He spoke of meeting weird passengers such as women dressed like men with male mannerisms and yet the breasts and hands of a woman. He spoke of cursing, angry mothers and females who smoked outdoors and did everything else outdoors for that matter, which none of us had ever witnessed in the Sudan. He spoke also of male passengers who were dressed like women or dressed like men except for some strange feminine behavior or things like wearing two earrings and lipstick or eye makeup and sometimes even wigs. He tried but could not really imitate or begin to capture the way the men spoke and altered their deep voices as if they were the same as women or the way they giggled and blushed. After his first couple affairs with such men, he admitted, pressing on the gas pedal and speeding off whenever he saw such bizarre men hailing his cab. He'd rather lose the money than have them as passengers. The American she-men are the greatest disgrace against everything we have ever known. And the black ones in particular are most embarrassing, he said. Growing more grim, he spoke of the African cabbie who got murdered by a shameless black American drug addict who got away with $27 and robbed a father and husband of at least 27 more years of life and love. He spoke of monster mothers who threw their kids into his back seat and dragged them out when it was time to go. Also, mothers who screamed and cursed at even their youngest children and had no patience and not even one trace of love. His sons must have felt as bad as I was feeling now. The older one introduced the topic of the World Cup, which he must have known would excite his father, the soccer fan, and ease the melancholy mood he was falling into on that Sunday afternoon. After a full hour, I saw the father check his watch. I assumed it was because of the upcoming afternoon prayer. Yes, in America, I have to use the clock for prayer times. He laughed a little. Back home, the call to prayer surrounded us all, didn't it? He stood up and made the call to prayer. We all washed our hands, face, and feet, which is required before prayer. For the first time on American soil, I performed the Salat, standing and then kneeling beside Muslim men, three of them and myself. Seven women prayed behind us, his wife and four daughters, plus Uma and Naja. I felt filled with emotion as we recited our prayers and did our rakas to look to my left, seeing the other Sudanese men, and then to my right, reminded me of being with my father, brothers and friends. I did not dare turn around and look at Uma. I knew somehow she must be back there spilling two or three tears. Mr. Salim Ahmed Amin Ghazali and I wrote up a contract. It was nothing complicated. 
just a simple agreement using simple words. When it was complete, both he and Uma placed their signatures at the end of the document. With no hesitation, he paid me the $5,000 deposit on Uma's services. He even made a joke. It's so much easier to part with my brother's money than with my own. Your Uma must be the best. For me, this amount of cash represents more than 500 passengers. 500 trips around New York, half of them just stuck in traffic. But my brother is a big man. For the wedding of his only son, he can give anything. All the best. Their son closed and then locked the gate behind us. We walked down the block toward the station. Did they ask a lot of questions? Uma asked me on the walk to the train. Not too many, I answered. I took care of our business. This time, though, I was certain that she was not focused on the money. I believe she was thinking about how incredible her life was, everything she possessed, and the prominent and royal position that she had once enjoyed. Perhaps she thought about how back home working was a joy and a hobby for her, an option, not a requirement. Her money was just something on the side that belonged only to her, not to be touched or mentioned by my father, who earned so much more. Probably she was dreaming about the thick love that she received each day, and the friendships she shared, and the beauty and pace of life compared to the one that she is living right now. I didn't say anything. I was just hoping that under these circumstances, my love and complete devotion to her could be enough. Early Sunday evening back in Brooklyn, we saw that the front entrance of our building was blocked off. There were police cars, a paddy wagon, and once again, the yellow tape. We had to enter our building from the back. We stepped through the gray metal utility door into a dark stairwell, our feet crunching on glass with each step we took. Someone had busted out all the light bulbs. Back upstairs in our little Sudan, I was feeling tight that from time to time my mother had to go through these fucked up living situations. If anything was wrong by way of her, I knew I was responsible for it. Let me move us out of here now, I said solemnly to Uma. Before we are ready? In the middle of everything? She said doubtfully. I'll do the work. Find the new place, everything, I assured her. She answered. Sometimes I want to do just that, but the truth is we are less than six months away from our financial goal. Alhamdulillah. With the blessing of this one wedding, we will be able to purchase our property and own it completely by this summer. Why should we spoil or delay what we have worked so hard to gain? Why should we throw our money into a real realtor and new apartment that is not ours to keep? We should stick with our plan. Inshallah, if we please Allah, everything will go fine.
It felt good to make those bank deposits on Monday morning. The usual teller stamped our passbook with the new numbers, representing our new balance. I held it in my hands and stared at it for a few. I spent Monday afternoon working for Uma Designs, shopping for the supplies that Uma requested for this grand wedding. I was in and out of stores in both Brooklyn and Manhattan with a swiftness. I had been at it so long now that the vendors knew me by the name I gave them and by my reputation. When there was a good deal, they would put things that I would usually order to the side and hold it for me. Sometimes, if I had too many shopping bags to move around with, there were a couple of businesses where I was so cool with the owners that I could leave my stuff there until I was finished shopping in their area. They would store it for me until I picked it up and loaded it into a cab. The ones I trusted with it never skimmed my packages. Uma didn't have any American credit cards yet, but we had credit. Those select foreigners who came to America and opened little spaces packed tight with the beautiful goods that we were accustomed to overseas would extend credit to one another that they would not extend to Americans. Many of us had come from unknown places where a man's word was worth as much as gold. And for Muslims, paying your debts is required, expected, and done.